0: But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, uh, we bow before you tonight humbly confessing our need for your spirit to be with us. Will you apply the truth of your word to the depths of our soul? Will you transform us to be a people who are marked by these realities of godly wisdom from above? Guide us in the realities of these truths, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine wrote a book that has become one of the most influential books in Western civilization. It's a book that was called The City of of God you see, in Augustine's day, the city of Rome had been attacked, the city of Rome that stood as the, the pinnacle of human achievement and human hope, Rome had fallen to the attacks of barbarians, and it was believed it was believed by some in that world that the fall of Rome was a result of the Christians' influence in the city of Rome and in the Roman Empire. And Augustine, to challenge that belief wrote the book called The City of God. And what he was doing is arguing that it wasn't actually Christianity that led to the downfall of Rome. It was actually Rome's own immorality that had caused spiritual decay from within. And that the city of Rome, the empire of Rome, was fracturing because of where they really truly, what they truly believed and where their hopes really lied. And he laid out this reality of two worlds, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man being the, the, the expression of life of those who are unbelievers, of those who don't believe in God's word, and those who live according to the ways of this world. He said that's the city of man, and it's ultimately destined to destruction and to being destroyed. But the city of God, he argued, operates with different principles, with different wisdom. And that's where our true hopes lie, because there lies the eternal realities of life that God has created. That idea is not new that Augustine created. In fact, you could say that he's really in some ways teaching us what James chapter 3 and 4 are telling us in God's word. What I just said, what I just read a moment ago, that James is presenting us in this passage with two ways to live. Two ways to live, one according to the ways of the world and one according to the wisdom that comes from God. And the path that he calls us to live is one of humility. So let's dive in on on these passages and, and consider these two different ways to live and what it looks like to live with humility marked by the wisdom that comes from God himself. Look at verse 14, how this passage begins. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. That, he says, verse 15, is not the wisdom that comes down from above. In other words, he's talking about this, this is worldly wisdom. And what does worldly wisdom look like? He says, worldly wisdom, worldly thinking, and worldly living, it looks like selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Actually, the word for bitter jealousy, he calls it, it's actually translated bitter zeal is actually the word. It's like this, this zealous attitude towards life that's marked by a bitterness of seeking to get ahead no matter what the cost. It's this It's a life of self-promotion that my success is ultimately what matters. And if it means that you or the people around me get destroyed in the process, well then so be it. What ultimately matters is I'm looking out for myself or I'm looking out for number one. Maybe you've had that person in your study group. (laughs) Maybe you've had that person as a partner on on a project who's willing at whatever cost to get whatever it is that they need looking out only for their own ways, or selfish ambition, he says. It's not just bitter jealousy, but also selfish ambition. And it's kind of helpful to stop for a moment and think about ambition itself isn't a bad thing. Sometimes ambition gets a bad rap, and we're really not sure what to do with that. And he's not arguing, and the Bible's not arguing that to be an ambitious person is a bad thing. You could argue that ambition in its proper place is is actually good. Think about in the business world for somebody, if you're ambitious and you're seeking to to create a company or a product or a service, and you're ambitious and seeking to do this in a way that's gonna be of service to others and helpful for other people, that ambition is good because behind it is not just profit, but also the care for those around you. Providing them with a good or a service that's gonna be to their benefit, we all mutually benefit in this scenario. Or if you're an athlete, and you're ambitious to be a great athlete, to be on the team. My kids are playing football right now, so I'm kind of in football mode and, and, and football uh, lingo and everything else. My son just got moved to wide receiver, so we're talking about what that means. You can't be a great wide receiver without a quarterback throwing you a pass. You can't be a great wide receiver without a running back playing his position well. And so as part of the team, if your ambitions, your success also hinges on other success as well. See, ambition is not necessarily a bad thing. But selfish ambition, where I'm looking out for myself and I don't care what happens to those around me, so long as I get seen, so long as I get promoted, so long as I'm the one that's the star and everyone sees what I've accomplished, that, James says, that's not the wisdom that comes from above. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 15, if you notice how the way that verse ends, he says, that wisdom, quote unquote, wisdom, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. That, I don't know about you, but like the first time you read that, that's pretty striking. There's a descending order to those words, earthly, unspiritual, demonic. We kind of get the idea, like I can see where that's not really godly. I can see where that's not really, you know, it's kind of more defined by the, the world in which we live, but demonic? You know, it's funny, most of us, when we think of the word demonic, probably picture some horror movie that you've seen or maybe you wish you didn't see of like somebody who's been demon possessed and it's terrifying to see what happens to them and there can all these different contortions and machinations and, and, it's, and it's meant to just make us recoil in horror. But I think the devil is far more subtle than that in the world in which we live. The wisdom of this world, that's defined as demonic, really just looks like someone who's got selfish ambition and bitterly jealous. He goes on to tell us in verse sixteen that that leads again. Verse sixteen: jealousy and selfish ambition leads to disorder in every vile practice. Verse one of chapter four, looking at what causes quarrels and fights among you, it's this verse too. You. Desire and do not have, so you murder, you covet, and do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Several years ago, I remember watching this movie called A Simple Plan. It's an old movie, but most of you have probably not seen it. Uh, It's a movie that's called A Simple Plan, and the story is these three men are hiking through the woods. These three men are friends, and as they're hiking through the woods, they stumble upon an airplane that has just crashed. They could hear it go down, and they stumble upon this airplane, and they discover the pilot in the front seat did not survive. He has no identification. There's no paperwork. It's almost as if this flight is intended to be anonymous. And in the back of the plane are duffel bags stuffed with millions of dollars in cash. And in that moment, as they talk to each other, they hatch an idea. Let's keep quiet. Let's keep the money. If this is never reported, We'll keep the money, we'll go our separate ways, and no one will ever know what happened. It's a simple plan. It's the name of the movie. And what unfolds through the rest of that movie was anything but simple. Suspicion, selfish ambition, bitter jealousy took over the relationships to where by the end of the movie, what defined their relationships was not just suspicion, but deceit murder, destruction, and their lives were absolutely ruined. Now, I know that that's like an extreme example, right? And most of us aren't going to walk into that scenario, but it captures the reality of what really does happen. What is so striking about this is you can feel the reality of what happens when selfish ambition and bitterness take root in our heart to where other people in my sphere of influence become my rivals that I have to destroy In order for myself to succeed. And it doesn't have to be in some sort of crazy example like that. It can hit much closer to home in ways that are far more subtle than maybe we realize. I remember seeing an interview with a local pastor of a big church in South Florida. And when he was talking about his desire to plant a church in South Florida, he says in the interview, I was so tired. I'm so tired of seeing all these little 400, 500, 600 member churches. Like, what are we doing? Let's do something big for God. And we're gonna prove how big we can be in order to see what God can really do. And you could hear in that interview, this sense of just dripping of selfish ambition. Our success means the destruction of those around us. James says, far be this to ever become the mindset even within the people of God, within the church. What about a campus ministry? What if the Christians on campus and their desire to see their ministries that they're part of succeed become known for competition and envy and rivalry with one another? How shameful that would be that no longer are we defined by the gospel and loving other people, but seeking to promote ourselves and the groups that we're part of rather than being known for faith and good works, known for slander and ambition and bitter rivalry. Paul in the book of Philippians is writing from prison and he writes in the book of Philippians as he's in prison for preaching the gospel, he says, some, listen to this, he says, I know some preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So some are envious in rivalry, some are preaching out of goodwill. He says, the, former, the latter I know do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. There's some that are preaching the gospel out of goodwill, wanting to make Christ known, But he says, the others preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so what's his conclusion? Let's go take him down. No, 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 no. You know how he concludes in that? So what? So that in every way that Christ is made known, whether in pretense or in truth, I rejoice. Paul, in that, in that book, knowing that there's some who are out seeking to make his life more miserable, he says, well, even if it's out of envy and rivalry, Christ is being proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. His heart isn't marked by this sense of rivalry and bitter ambition that's marked by worldly ways, but it's really marked. And the second point that I want you to see in this is that his heart is marked with godly wisdom that comes from above. Notice what James says about this idea of living with godly wisdom. If the first warning for us is to, is to avoid worldly wisdom, he calls us then to live like those who are marked by wisdom from God. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. That, that's an interesting word. Uh, meek is not a word that we use that often anymore. And it's usually not a word that you would want somebody to like, man, I've met him. He's so meek. Like, whew, really? It sounds like an insult, right? But the word meek actually shouldn't be seen as an insult because I think the way, the way that I would kind of translate it is it really sort of means someone whose strength and wisdom and knowledge has been harnessed and under control for good purposes that serve a good end. In fact, it's a word that was used for like uh, in an agricultural setting for like a horse or an oxen that was said to be meeked was one that you could count on to go and do the job that you needed it to do. It's not that this horse or this ox has lost its strength or has somehow become weak, but we've actually been able to train it and harness it so that it can do the job that we need it to do. Have you ever seen my? This weekend, I was watching with my boys. It was raining, so we're like watching TV and trying to find something on. And we're watching bull riding was on. Pretty amazing. I don't know if you ever watched bull riding. Uh, if you ever watch bull riding, it's incredible. This wild animal that somebody gets on. They're wearing a face mask and usually the guy's missing some teeth and he's got a helmet and a chest protector and he gets on this bull that is going absolutely insane out of control and he's trying to ride this thing for eight seconds. And as soon as he's bucked off of it, do you know what everybody does? They scatter. They get as far away from that animal as they possibly can because it's a bull that is absolutely out of control. In other words, it's not a bull that would be defined as meek. It's not under control. It's wild. They're snot flying and they're spit flying out of this thing, and you don't want to get anywhere near it. And that, I think, is like the picture of a person who's marked by bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. They're just destroying people everywhere they go, but one who's been marked by the meekness and wisdom of God, well, that's one who's under control and who's serving the purposes of God to the glory of God and serving those around him. You can see it actually in verse 17 when he says, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You can just almost hear that description and think, man, that's somebody that you want to be around. That's somebody that's just marked by this sense of of joy and calmness and marked by the realities of knowing God himself in the hardships and struggles of life. That word for gentle uh, is actually a word that means the ability to suffer injustice without hatred or malice but trusting God with the process. Let me say that again. The word for gentle in that passage is somebody who has the ability to suffer injustice without hatred or malice, trusting God with the results of their life. Over this summer, summer of 2022, a man named Buck O'Neill was inducted into the Hall of Fame for Major League Baseball. Buck O'Neill's life is so remarkable because he was the first African-American coach to ever coach in Major League Baseball. He played his entire career in what was called the Negro Leagues of that time. And by the time he was old enough, or by the time he was old enough, that integration began to happen in Major League Baseball. His playing career was mostly over, but he committed his life to making known the story of these African-American baseball players, keeping their legacies alive and advocating for them to make it to the Hall of Fame. Buck O'Neill was inducted this year in 2022. He died in 2006. What's remarkable about his story is when he first started to advocate for all of these African-American players to make it into the Hall of Fame, at the first round of the voting, all of these players that he was advocating to make it were voted in, but he wasn't counted good enough. And he was a man who was marked by remarkable joy and remarkable peace and remarkable love for those around him. That, in fact, at that first induction ceremony in 2006, three months before he died, they asked him, will you give the speech for these men who are being inducted? We're sorry you didn't make it, but will you give the speech? And when he stood in front of the Hall of Fame to tell his story and to, introduct- and to induct these players, uh, this is what he said. I tell you what, they always said to me, Buck, I know you have to hate people for what they did to you or what they did to your folks. His father, his grandfather was a slave. He said, no, I never learned to hate. I hate cancer. Cancer killed my mother. My wife died 10 years ago of cancer. By the way, I'm single ladies, that's what he said. (laughs) Agape though, he said. Agape love is a redemptive good toward the will of all men. Agape is an overflowing love which seeks nothing in return. And when you reach a love on this level, you love all men, not because you like them, not because their ways appeal to you, but you love them because God loved them. And I love my God with all my heart and with all my soul. And I love every one of you as I love myself. You can go back and watch interviews and watch stories of him telling his stories of playing and you just think, I'd love to be able to sit and know him and hear his stories because out of his faith in Christ and the sense of gentleness and compassion of a wisdom that's not defined by this world, he was marked by these adjectives that we just read, peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, sincere. His statue is actually now in the Hall of Fame, and an award is named for him for those who make significant contributions, finally recognizing the influence that he has had. So how do we get from this place of selfish ambition and bitter rivalry to a place marked by this godly wisdom that we read about, marked by this type of relationship towards those around us? Notice what he says finally, third point for you to see is that God calls us to a path of humility. God calls us to the path of humility. In chapter 4, verse 6, he says that he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he goes on in verse 10 to say, then, Well, then humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humility is an interesting trait. It's one of those things that we have to be careful of, because as soon as you think you've become humble, you've probably become pride, proudful. Like, look at, look at how humble I am. I'm such a humble person. I want everybody to know my humility, or as I just read a lady's LinkedIn uh, uh, update the other day, it was, she said, I, I received this award once again with the utmost humility. Not like, really? It's <laughs> a remarkable thing to declare about yourself as you receive this award that you've declared for everybody, so you're like, I hear your pride, Jeff. I'm sorry, I need to repent. Uh, but what is humility, right? What is C.S. Lewis, listen to this quote from C.S. Lewis. What does humility look like? Uh, humility, C.S. Lewis says is that, well, if you met somebody that was really humble, probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said. And if you do dislike him, it's probably because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Someone who's not concerned about their own self, but really dives in to hear On you and your story. How do you humble yourself like that before God? I think the only way to understand the verses in verses 8 and 9 is to understand that it's really a call to humility. We're told in verse 8 to draw near to God and He'll draw near to you to cleanse your hands and to purify your hearts. How? Well, verse 9 is our posture towards our sin be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. That's not a call to be depressed. That's a call to acknowledge your sin before God. And rather than to deny it, or rather than to act like it's not real, or rather to even take pride in it, to humbly confess it before God and to let your sin, to let your pride, to let the places that you've sought to make a name for yourself that others will see you and that others will recognize you, your bitter envy and your jealousy and your rivalry. He says those are the areas in which we should be wretched and mourn and weep and to confess those sins to God himself. And knowing that in doing so, as you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. You see, at the cross, we see that Jesus is one who took we're told in Philippians, his deity, and he didn't seek that to be something that he could grasp or hang on to, but he emptied himself, he humbled himself, he made himself nothing, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you and I might live. But the great promise from that reality is that God himself sees and meets us in that place, and he promises us in verse 10 that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will exalt you. You see, James is calling us to see that there's really only two ways to live. Uh, The city of man, which leaves a trail of relational destruction and harm, and the city of God, the world, the wisdom of God himself that produces peace, mercy, joy, and humility before God and others. And my real hope for us as we follow Christ, as those part of our UF, as Christians on campus, as those who are making the light of the gospel known, that that becomes the defining reality for all of us and all of those relationships that we're in. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, we do come before you and confess that so often we are motivated out of envy, out of rivalry, out of wanting to be seen and wanting to be the focus of attention. Will you break us and cause us to mourn of our our sin, to mourn of those places and to trust the process that you're at work in redeeming us and drawing us closer to you? May we be a people that are marked on campus uh, by this sense of humility, of true love for you and true love for others. Where the peace of Christ and the gentleness and the reasonableness of the gospel marks our friendships and relationships with those around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.